Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks, Alex. How are you? I'm fine. I'm grinding juggernaut style to the conclusion of the year and looking forward to next already. Not to wish the time away, but my goodness, news of the books of next year and sometimes the books themselves are arriving. Very exciting. Yes, it's starting, isn't it? There's a sort of little mini, mini, um, sort of. I was going to say mini, mini boom. Yes, that's much better. Mini booker lunch in January again, isn't there? What have you got? I have got. This is out in the spring of next year, but a new novel by Sarah Perry. Oh, that's a treat. Which I'm excited about. Which I started last night. It's called Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And I think there's going to be quite a lot of physics, if not astrophysics, in it. You'll be fine then, Alex. You're, I'll be absolutely fine. Exactly. 20 pages in and I'm I'm still keeping up with it and enormously enjoying it. So that's that's what I'm doing. Good. That sounds exciting. We've got such a lot in this week. I feel like we can't stay in chat to each other because no, we've got such exactly. a lot to pack in, haven't we? We do. We do. This week. Broadcaster James O'Brien and the TLS's editor Martin Ivans join us to explore the roller coaster fortunes of the Tory party. And Muriel Zaga on the long spell cast by Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes. But first, in a week that's seen the government unveil dramatic new measures to limit immigration and former Prime Minister Boris Johnson summoned before the COVID inquiry, The sense of a party fighting for its political survival is intense. When the election comes, have the Tories got any chance of reversing current opinion polls or are they destined for a long period in opposition? And for the party thought to prize electoral success above all else, how has this happened? Here to discuss this vexed question are the editor of the TLS, Martin Ivans, and broadcaster and writer James O'Brien, whose latest book, How They Broke Britain, might give us a clue that he's already devoted some thought to this issue. (laughs) Welcome to both of you. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Hello. 
We should start by saying that you've both reviewed books on this subject in this week's TLS from different sorts of angle. Martin, your trio of assessments of where the Conservatives and conservatism are at the moment seem to be broadly pessimistic. And James, you've reviewed a very long book about Rishi Sunak by Michael Ashcroft that you find unrealistically optimistic. I wonder if you'd just both tell us, James, let's start with you. Just tell us what you had in front of you. It was bizarre, actually, because it's it's an update of a biography that he first published in 2020, when I suppose the title All to Play For was a little more pertinent. That's what he's called it now. Back then it was called Going for Broke, The Rise of Rishi Sunak. The problem for Ashcroft as an author is twofold. The first is that Sunak is quite spectacularly dull. But the second problem is that since the first biography was written, and sadly, since the manuscript for the updated version was delivered, the sort of, the wheels have rather come off. So this very upbeat and optimistic tone, and a, I, I mean, very, very laudatory, Michael Ashcroft and his crack team of researchers clearly started from the position that, that Rishi Sunak was the future, and, and a jolly good thing too. And of course, subsequently, he's turned out to be anything but. So it's a it's a very strange read in many ways because of the amount and the, and the flavour of water that has passed under the bridge since since the thesis was assembled. So it's, it's I mean, you'd have to, I think, strap a pair of rose-tinted glasses to the cover in Waterstones if you were to sell it with any effect. Maybe they'll do that for the paperback. Yes, probably <laughs> Martin, yeah. your three bits take a much longer view, don't they? Perhaps, particularly there, there are two that, look at what has happened to the Conservative Party in the last couple of decades. And then there's an edited collection by David Gork, which is sort of making the case for what might happen in the future. That's right. I mean, the party is over by Phil Burton Cartledge. It's an interesting piece of work. I mean, it's an update, I think, of something he wrote about a year ago. It's interesting because it comes from a pronounced left-wing viewpoint, but it nevertheless takes the Conservative Party seriously. He identifies a problem on the left, that it becomes too much, it's too indulgent, too navel-gazing. It has to address why the other side succeeds. Insofar that it it has that ambition, I think I I really do salute it. Um, He also looks at what he considers to be its long-term failure electorally. I mean, that, again, is rather counterintuitive because this is a party notable for its success. I mean, it's ruled the country over... Uh, two 13-year periods, uh, one of 19 years. It dominates the political landscape. But it's an interesting argument to take a look at. With that uh, is a a narrative of 13 years of Tory rule uh, and looking forward uh, again to the Tories' demise by Ben Riley Smith, who's the political editor of the Daily Telegraph. It's very strong on detail. He's done some very good reviews of some of the, the major players and unearthed in a, a new information that, that I've not read before. I think its problem, as with all narrative history, is it needs proper explication. I think you need to bring it all together in a way that I think, you know, curiously enough, I think a Marxist analysis is rather good at doing because it, it, a Marxist analysis will have a thesis. I think there's a, there's a problem uh, that uh, people identify with a lot of uh, modern political journalism, that the pudding often doesn't have a theme. It, it's mostly there, but he doesn't bring it together. In terms of what Alex was saying about the books that you read seem to be broadly pessimistic about, certainly about the near future, 
of the Tory party. Is that the tone that they shared? Yes, I think that's right. And you, you know, I mean, it, it would be hard to argue against uh, the opinion polls, which show uh, the Tories lagging by 20 points, you know, roughly, you know, uh, consistently. Mm. I mean, also, you have the evidence of the internal Tory polling. Uh, you know, if, if uh, the, the Conservative Home Activist website is anything to go by, I mean, the, you know, for, I think James is absolutely right. I mean, the, the Prime Minister's own polling amongst Conservative activists is in in negative territory. The party's leading uh, figures are, are less popular amongst Conservatives than they were than when he uh, took the keys to number 10. Would it be, do either of you think, a different story had they selected someone else? And who could that have been? Was it just a sort of scramble after Liz Trust to get someone in? I mean, why did they do it when it's turned out so badly? Uh, they thought he was sensible, didn't they? they? They thought he was a safe pair of hands. And um, I suppose there was a, a conflation of dullness with with competence. But but also, you know, the eat out to help out looked like quite a good idea, although I think that's going to be uh, very violently revised when he comes to give his evidence to the COVID-19 inquiry. And because I think it's a Tory failing, more perhaps than it is in other parties, but because he'd made a, because he'd made a ton of money, they thought he must be very good at... Um, at dealing with political issues, and he's not. He's, he's bad at both populism and politics. So to answer your question, in the short term, somebody good at populism would probably be doing a little better in the polls, and somebody good at politics would be presiding over a less pessimistic big picture. But someone who's poor at both politics and populism is the worst possible leader of the Conservative Party at the moment. Jamesy, even your dog agrees. Even <laughs> yes, the I'm dog sorry. does not. No, we we love having dogs to, on the podcast. To continue the alliteration, that's Polly. So the populist politics politician Polly approves of. Sorry, <laughs> Martin. I think no, I think James is absolutely right. You know, uh, I mean, I only add one rider. I mean, which is the answer to your question is how did he get there? He seemed to have got it right. I mean, he predicted, I know uh, that. Truss's economic plan wouldn't stand up to scrutiny and it would fail spectacularly. And he was the last man standing, you know, I mean, who was there left? Mm. Martin, you say this in your piece that he says he's the candidate for change and then he brings back <laughs> David Cameron <laughs> yeah. and has a, a cabinet now of people who, as you say, Martin, as you should say about James Cleverly, you say that he seems to have the gift for telling the truth by accident. Which <laughs> 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 is a very good line, which he wouldn't like, but because there's there's these reports of him calling the Rwanda plan batshit, and which he's now signing us. I think as we speak, he's signing another version of it. You think it's also a problem of because you you sort of locate two sets within the party, the nativists and the. Um, the sort of more old-fashioned, socially liberal side, as it were. Do you think it's a failure also of who he had around him? I think there's a general question of competence. I think it's a very worrying one for the country, actually. I mean, in, whether you're mm. you know, a, a Conservative or a Labour supporter. Mm. The Rwanda mm. policy doesn't seem to have been thought through at all. You know, I mean, you know, there have been interesting right-of-centre critics of it from the beginning. I mean, who sort of said, well, have you done your homework? I mean, that... Can you administer such such a scheme, you know, without it being struck down by the courts? If you really wanted to follow, I presume, what was the Australian model, 
you know, uh, the Australian, they used to, they had a policy like this using the island of Nauru in, in the Pacific Ocean, but it was administered by, by uh, Australian officials. The policy was bound to fall foul of the courts. So you have to wonder, both at the political and at the level of the higher civil service, who was advising, you know, on the detail? I mean, they just seem to have come up with different uh, sort of models of this policy without ever doing the proper homework. I mean, it, it was doomed to fail from the start. And I think that's the most worrying thing. I mean, you can, you know, you can take whatever view you like of, you know, of immigration, and you may have particularly about reservations about tearing up international treaties, which this may involve, but you'd have thought for such a consequential matter, you know, some serious thought would be put into it. And I find that very worrying because I find that a sort of a mark of, of something worse, I think, that's uh, abroad in, in, in British political life. Is it to do with the belief that you are, if you are seen to be delivering a policy like this, you are automatically going to appeal to a broad section of the population who, as the Conservatives may keep telling us, are terrified by unchecked immigration. But do we actually even know that that's true? Do they make assumptions about what people think when they don't even have that right, I wonder? James? I think Martin pinpointed part of the problem perfectly because it's not, as you say, Lucy, about delivering a policy. It's about appearing to be the most performatively pungent on the issue of immigration, the, to be the politician, probably driven either by sort of personal perspective or by ambition or a combination of both. The belief is that certainly to be the next leader of the Conservative Party, the constituency to whom you are appealing is the constituency that put Liz Truss in Downing Street. It's the constituency that's falling again for Kemi Badenoch's ludicrous embellishments and exaggerations about the non-existent trade deals that she's supposedly signing now, a complete copy and paste of, of the tactics Liz Truss deployed. So it doesn't matter whether there is a significant swathe of the population obsessing about immigration in the way that the Daily Mail does. It simply matters that the Conservative Party membership is probably correctly perceived to be. And there you open up the, the, the chasm of difference between feasible policy and and political posturing. So if you look at Rwanda as essentially the love child of Priti Patel and Suella Braverman that James cleverly has inherited, there's nothing he can do with it except pretend that it can be animated and pretend that it can work and, and presumably just watch the clock until none of them are in, in government anymore. But then then the purpose behind all of this posturing becomes clearer because they will seek to position themselves certainly the first two of those characters, and Cleverly may well be in the mix as well, but they will simply be competing, not on who has successfully reduced immigration, but who has sounded the most, I would say, unpleasant, others might say robust on the general issue. So 13 years of failure, but if only I'd been in charge, we would have clamped down on it, mm. say mm. two former Home Secretaries. It's, I mean, it is a little bit surreal. Let's think about it in the sort of longer term. I mean, Martin, this is where the books that you had under review come in. You know, this didn't happen overnight. Things started going wrong a long time ago. And they centre around certain sort of, you know, tentpole kind of issues, don't they? And and Europe is always in there, it seems. Yes, I mean, there is a link there. I mean, I, I think 
if you take a historical view of the two parties, I mean, the Labour Party often splits and has tensions over international policy. You can see that most recently over Israel and Gaza, where there was a, a rebellion uh, against Kistama's authority in the House of Commons that there was of little consequence given everything else that was going on at the time. You can trace that back through Tony Blair's promotion of British involvement in the Iraq war and goes back. And that's always going to be, I think, a, an issue for the uh, Labour Party. I think similarly, the, the Conservative Party, which presents itself as a sort of national party, a national sovereignty party, is always going to have difficulties with Europe. I mean, they were there from right from the beginning. I think you can go back all the way to uh, Margaret Thatcher's Single European Act and the Maastricht Treaty five years later, that there is a, a problem for uh, a right of centre party with its membership you know, about pooling sovereignty and surrendering powers. You know, and, and that, I think, is it will just be a fixture of Conservative parties and governments for years to come. Mm, mm. Not to involve you in my viewing life too much, don't worry. But the other night, I happened to be re-watching a favourite film, The Long Good Friday, which is oh, set, yeah, well. <laughs> set in 1980. I know, I don't like anything made after about 1982, Martin. <laughs> and what struck me as incredible was that we, we're used to that idea of, you know, it takes place when the docks are being built up, when that part of east of the capital is really, you know, it's a, a sort of land grab for development. And the gangster character in it, played by Bob Hoskins, his speech to everyone, is that he is going to make London the capital of Europe. The whole of Europe will look towards London. Now he is, like 1980, I mean, he is a sort of Thatcherite figure. So it was not always thus, was it? This idea of a kind of Euroscepticism that settled deeply. I mean, patriotism for him was taking London to the heart of Europe. I was very intrigued by that. Can I contradict you on that, Alex? I mean. Mm. Colin Willen's script is very good. But remember, the Hoskins uh, gangster wants to do a deal with the American mafia first. It's only at his when he's Quite disappointed, true. you know, because he when the Americans with, withdraw, because rather like the British state, he has problems handling the IRA, that he says, all right, I'm going to make a deal with Europe. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, you can't trust the Yanks, you know. So no. that's quite true, quite true. <laughs> Martin, I hadn't had you down as knowing that film as well as that. You see, we would clearly both just, know it very well. We do. We were talking just before we, we started the podcast with Martin and I shared love of the, the novelist Nicola Barker. And it seems our cultural hinterland <laughs> is very nicely in alignment. But James, I mean, this business of Europe, it, it just bedevils the Tory party, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And oddly, if, if we're going to use fiction as a lens through which to examine fact, there's a brilliant new book by um, a former MI6 operative using the name Charles Beaumont called A Spy Alone, which only just landed in front of me. And he, he plots that course that you've just been talking about very expertly because, it, it, it I mean, it was, a, it was a fringe and eccentric issue. The idea that people like Daniel Hannan and Bill Cash would end up defining a generation of Tory party policy in the 1980s, I think even Daniel Hannan and Bill Cash might have sniggered at the prospect <laughs> of that happening. And yet the party has been very much, plus, of course, you know, the side order of, of Nigel Farage bringing the nativism to the top of the test tube, it very much been recreated entirely that image. So it didn't have to be thus. John Major was plagued by these people. And it's popular to say that, that conservative leaders are always 
undone by Europe, but with a big majority, they could all have been ignored. With 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 a you know with a big majority, Cameron wouldn't have had to go into coalition. So it's only about electoral arithmetic that allows headbangers like Mark Reckless or Douglas Carswell to hold a gun to the party leader's head. The Eurosceptic vein is running through the Tory party, but but it's only ever rendered crucial by. Um, by variables you know it's it's mm. small and mm. then it becomes pertinent by dint of everything else that's going on around it but it's not Europe anymore it's it's I think it's worse than that for the Tories I, I think that I will say the failure of Brexit although I read a piece by Larry Elliott in the Guardian this morning effectively arguing that because the country still exists in some vaguely recognizable <laughs> form then you can't possibly claim that Brexit has failed at all but it's not exactly what I said, but I take your point. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody honest or vaguely objective would have to concede that what people voted for has not happened on any measurable uh, scale. And yet the Tories continue really to be to be tied to it for two reasons, ideologically perhaps, but, but crucially in terms of personnel. So the, the cull of 2019, including David Gork, of course, and then the, the, the subsequent pretense that things are going well and that things can only be done as a consequence of us having already left. I don't actually see how they can return to being a a plausible party of government while they remain handcuffed to to the legacy lies, as you could call them, or or at least the alternative facts that continuing to pretend Brexit is going well and was a good idea involved. It's one of those strains, isn't it, that I was sort of trying to talk about, that if you say that there's the nativists, as it were, who, yes, who who were not a big group, but who have held the balance of power enough, I guess, to to be influential. And then, and Martin, you were talking about how now it seems with the with the return of, of David Cameron, is it right that one of the books is positing that it might be, or this is your thesis, that that group of Tories might be coming back? I was actually citing evidence not in the books by... Um... Uh, political scientist Tim Bale, uh, Queen Mary London. I mean, he's done analysis of, of all the constituencies uh, in, in England, Wales, uh, looking at the results, the, pro- the probable results of a general election and it's their effects on uh, the Conservative Party if they have a, 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 um, a terrible reverse. Um, because it's it, it's sort of easily said that this will turn them into a, a sort of Tory Taliban rump if they suffer... Uh, a defeat of sort of uh, 1997 magnitude. But uh, on his analysis, in fact, it'll be the, the most hardline uh, nativist or call them or, or, or new conservative, call them what you will. You know, uh, that faction, in fact, will suffer, you know, disproportionately. So that the Conservative Party may, uh, in fact, swing back to a more centrist position. You also said in your piece that because um, you were talking, you were talking about competence, which we were talking about mm. earlier, and and the uh, apparent lack thereof, but also that, of course, I mean, as it is in 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 every strand of British life, in a way, it's also in a way about class. Well, <laughs> I was being a bit teasy at that point. It was because yeah. it was sort of my, it was Michael Portillo's attack on his successors. I mean, yes, Portillo was yeah. seen in some ways as a sort of a, a model for. Uh, the younger uh, uh, set who ended up running the country because he was a modernizer. The, the Conservative Party at that stage, remember, was hung up on you know, what we now see as very outdated, you know, social values. You know that they were perceived to be sort of homophobic um, and just weren't very much in in tune with late twentieth century Britain. Whereas you know, Teddy Blair, who George Osborne and David Cameron referred to as the master 
Faulkner was. So they looked to an extent to Portillo as a kind of as a model, you know, as a way of sort of breaking with the past. Uh, except that sort of Portillo thought they were they were too soft. They weren't really sort of had hard edged objectives. You know, I mean, you know, they as a state school boy, he, he, he's mm. were a sort of a bunch of old Etonians who were probably you know when it came to it, you know, weren't going to deliver. Mm, but then one of them is on the way back. Already, I know that is a, a, a very strange throwback, isn't it? The the reappearance of David Cameron on the scene. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> look, it's desperate, isn't it? I, mm. I mean, it, it's mm. a desperate, and, it, and it's also yet more evidence of him being of Sunak being something of a weather vane because you know, almost in the same week that Cameron comes back and people start talking about sensible or grown-ups, which I think is very generous to David Cameron. He snubs the Greek Prime Minister over a absolutely childish uh, fit of petulance and, and looks like a looks like a thin-skinned man-child again. And, and of course, he gives Esther McVeigh a made-up job as Minister of Common Sense, which even a Question Time audience finds hilarious. So it, it, it's as if he's sort of, he reminds me a bit of a showerhead bouncing around the bottom of the bathtub and, and just spraying in every imaginable direction, hoping that he somehow might manage to wash himself. I don't, well, I don't want to uh, insult you by... Well, I'm sorry, maybe it's not an insult. I don't want to compare you to Dominic Cummings, but that sounds a bit like the trolley thing. I mean, it's not not as much, is it? No, he has occasional moments of verbal clarity coming, so, you know, and he swears magnificently, which is good for the good for the national pageant but he is I mean Johnson's different because you I think Cummings's frustration was that he thought he'd be steering the trolley so a dodgy wheel a dodgy wheel makes steering the trolley impossible Sunak I think is is actually you know he almost from one day to the next he's trying to appease the one nation Tories by appointing David Cameron and trying to appease the nativists by promoting Esther McVeigh and then I don't know what he was thinking of this goes back to the point about the competence around him but you know there are people in that room that don't whisper in his ear when he suggests giving a speech announcing the abolition of non-existent bins or he suggests cancelling very publicly a meeting with the Greek Prime Minister who has committed the sin of reiterating what has been Greek government policy for the best part of 150 years. I mean, it just is so ridiculous, the positions that he gets himself into. But I, I wonder whether it's actually too kind to him to question the quality of advice that he's getting and, and actually attribute these enormous missteps to, to, to some flaw in his personality, which brings us back to Ashcroft's book and its utter failure to admit the existence of any flaws at all. I do find it. I mean, I sort of agree with James. I mean, it was a very touchy performance over... Uh, he's an interesting, intelligent man, Amitsatakis. So why wouldn't you engage with him? Uh, one thing I would sort of point to, and and and, and again, I'd, I'd find it a little disturbing. I mean, we have to remember that sort of that Sunak is a very inexperienced politician. I mean, I know he's, yeah. he was Chancellor of the Exchequer before he was um, Prime Minister, but his relative experience in in politics is, you know, it's quite shallow. I'm also think that that, you know, that that's worrying about the future a bit too. I mean. One has to, you know, sort of comprehend how swiftly politics has changed. It was just over two years ago that Labour was a write-off, you know, uh, uh, after it lost, you know, what was like sort of a playing-at-home by-election in Hartlepool. Everybody thought, you know, that, that Labour and Keir Starmer was finished. And my worry is, you know, 
the likelihood is the Conservative Party will lose, and we don't, it's a question of the size and magnitude of its defeat. But in this brief time, you know, from when the opposition was a write-off, it's, it's, it will have had a, about two and a half years to prepare itself for government. It's not e- even yet got round to talking to senior civil servants about its plans for government. Are they ready? Have they got the experience? I mean, you know, it's going to be led by, again, by, by you know, a competent figure who's run a, you know, um, a senior office outside politics, but who's had no ministerial experience whatsoever. Once again, the country looks to Sue Gray. Yeah, quite. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, it's impossible to have a crystal ball, as we've all seen. But, you know, we think there'll be an election possibly even as soon as spring. What do you think is going to happen then? Just wipe out? I think that's overdoing it. I mean, I think, you know, that one forgets how severe the defeat to the Labour Party in 2019 was. Now, even with a, a, a Tony Blair style swing, they've got a lot of ground to recover and they'll do better in Scotland uh, this time because of the problems the SNP leadership have had recently. But it's, it's a lot to ask to, to be able to replicate that performance. That said, I mean, it's very difficult at the moment to see what a, a Conservative Party voter is meant to be turning out for. So, no, I don't think it will be in May because I don't think, and this is my sort of hunch i don't think that the tories are going to you know our turkeys voting for christmas they're lagging behind in the polls they would sit it out for a, a you know a better time even if that better time doesn't come at least they're in in government at the moment i think it looks like a comfortable labor majority but i wouldn't say any but that's just a guess and anything can change politics is you know incredibly volatile hmm. it's so volatile in fact you can't rule out another putch in the Another leadership challenge for, for for the Tories between now and the next general election. There, there are certainly people in the party and in influential positions mad enough to to contemplate it. I, I go I, I go a little beyond the caution. I, I think so much is going to depend on turnout. I can't, mm. like Martin, quite imagine who will turn up enthusiastically voting for for the Conservative Party. So you're only really going to have the absolute died in the wool loyalists, some of whom I think might be tempted a little bit further to the right, to the to the tiny space left to the right that Richard Tice is um is, is trying to make appeal, make appealing. So so then it, it just comes down to whether or not Starmer and the Labour Party can can move the vote. So I think that the most interesting constituency in the next general election might be the people currently minded not to vote at all. I go with that. Well, thank you both very much for hazarding. We have got (laughs) consensus in a political debate. (laughs) They've agreed with each other a lot, Lucy, haven't they? (laughs) Thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank Thank you you very much much to Martin Ivans and James O'Brien and, of course, Polly the dog. We hugely appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. Still to come on the show, Muriel Zaga joins us to celebrate 75 years of the Red Shoes. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode.
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. In 1845, Hans Christian Andersen published as one of his fairy stories, The Tale of the Red Shoes, one of his darker stories in which a young girl cannot stop dancing in a pair of enchanted shoes and eventually dies. And about 100 years later, in 1948, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger made a film of the same name, with the story updated and, as our reviewer Muriel Zaga says, given another turn of the screw. 75 years after that, the British Film Institute has put on an exhibition about this extraordinary work. Muriel reviewed it for us in the TLS this week, and she joins us now to tell us more. Welcome, Muriel. Hello. Hi, it's lovely to have you back. Now, it's fair to say, I was very pleased with this commission because of what you said when I first asked you. It's fair to say you're a fan of the film, isn't it? <laughs> yes, uh, I am a fan of the film. I saw the film for the first time when I was quite young and impressionable, and I was very fortunate because... It was there was a screening at the Paris Opera House. Oh, so on a great big screen. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Uh, when uh, you know, in the, this would have been in the early, maybe mid nineteen eighties, and so and then I've seen it again many times since then. And it took it, it's a film that takes some sort of uh, getting used to because it's such a a total assault on the senses. Mm. And so yes, seventy five years old. Yeah, it's the jewel in the crown, uh, in a way of the the um, Paul Pressburger retrospective at BFI, and it's perhaps the most visually rich of all uh, of Paul and Pressburger's enterprises. I think probably that is why it's the subject of this exhibition. Mm. We should say I think it's in cinemas again this week, so you, not everybody will be able to see it at the Paris Opera, which must be one of the best <laughs> places in the world to see it. I have to say. But um, I think I think it's on in cinemas again this week. So tell us, I mean, there's lots of layers going on here, aren't there? But first of all, what does the film add to Hans Christian Andersen's version in terms of, of story? Well, so most obviously it transposes the story into the world of dance. So it's a, it's a dance film. It's, a, it's a, one of the most famous ones and made even more wonderful because it's actually the dancing is performed by professional dancers as opposed mm. to like Black Swan or, you know, there's been quite a lot of debate as to whether uh, Natalie Portman was actually performing all the dances herself. I mean, all of that sort of thing. Here, there's no, uh, there's none of that tension. Uh, so there's an, a, a real authenticity about the art form there. 
so yes, the the story is of a young woman who is a dancer played by Maura Shearer, who was herself a, already a principal at Settlers Wells at the time, who is hired by a company called uh, the Ballet Lermontov, which is uh, very closely modeled on the Ballet Russe and on uh, Diaghilev's relationship with Nijinsky, really. Mm -hmm. And she is given a once in a lifetime chance to become a prima ballerina and to create the role of the girl in a new ballet called The Red Shoes, a new ballet which is based on the uh, Anderson story. So Anderson is in the background and we know how cruelly the Anderson story ends and it's narrated very fleetingly in the film. So we're given a warning that all might not be well with her, but then it's really about a dance company, the sort of power play within that, how people get cast, the heartache of not being cast, the joy of being cast, and then the grueling discipline of dancing and of breaking your body and then remaking it into this moving work of art that is a great dancer. Mm. Mm. I'm so interested in the way that it crosses over into the real life of Moira Shearer, because as you say, she was a principal dancer but she hadn't made a film before had she she hadn't so that's the really interesting thing about the exhibition I think so one, one thing is it's great that BFI are now going to hopefully have more of these um, sort of uh, monomaniacal exhibitions about <laughs> one film it's the first time they've done this uh, because it gives you access to the archive in a way that you wouldn't normally get as an ordinary uh, film goer, not a scholar. So they've chosen to tell the story of the film really from the point of view of Moira Shearer and what it might have been like for someone who was already a performer, but a, a dancer who'd never done any cinema, being plucked out of the world of, the world of dance and then uh, having to learn how to be an actress and how to deal with the world of film. And she was actually pretty reluctant initially, Moira Shearer. You know, she was she was working she had things to do and I think she was very uh, wary of what a film might be like and that she might not be able to do it she might not be able to fit in and so on. and then eventually she gave in and she, she it's wonderful for us that she did but the the exhibition tries to give a sense of the the sort of nightmare fairy tale element of that for her, for the actress, for the the dancer who becomes an actress in the film, as well. I mean, it obviously is mirrored then in the film, in the story of the character of Vicky Page, which is played by Maura Shearer. It's hard to imagine because, I mean, the point is made, it is a form of time travel. You have to remember this is post-war, immediately post-war in Britain, and things are still pretty hard. And then Moira Shearer is flown over to Monte Carlo and has this unbelievable sort of sun-soaked experience of then filming the film in, in the most glamorous circumstances imaginable. So there is an element of fairy tale there. But also, of course, I think she was very open. Moira Shearer, I mean, was very open about how grueling the experience of doing the film was because I think Powell... You know, I mean, it's difficult to be a great artist, perhaps without being a little bit of a bully and a control freak. But there's certainly an element of perfectionism at play there. And you can just imagine that when Lermontov says, you know, I want to make something big out of something little. I want to make a great dancer out of you. That is also very much Powell's mm. attitude to his actresses generally, not just Moira Shearer in this particular film. So a bit of a traumatic, formative experience for her, though she did work with him twice again after that in The Tales of Hoffman and in 
um, Peeping Tom. So uh, possibly, you know, and it made her a big, big star, a much bigger star. She was already famous, but it made her incredibly famous, internationally famous. Mm, there's more sort of interleaving between between yeah. life and the art. The membrane is incredibly thin, isn't it? Yeah. Between <laughs> yeah. the, the subject of the film and the filming of the film. Incredible. Yes. So like, yeah, a kind of layer of cellophane, very thin layer of coloured cellophane, maybe between the two things. Yeah. yeah. There, there are some wonderful details that you give us, not least the letter to Moira Shearer from her fellow actor Anna Neagle. You've got to share that with everyone because so it's there's, there's lots of uh, really interesting memorabilia that's been um, lent by the Moira Shearer archive and things that I'd never seen before, including a letter addressed to Mistress Shearer by uh, Anna Neagle. <laughs> It's all sort of written in character. It's very funny. And she says, it's a very short letter, asking simply that Moira Shearer return her feather boa because she wants to strangle Errol Flynn with it. <laughs> what must be the most Flynn Must be the most glamorous letter you can write. <laughs> a, to have a feather boa. B, it to need time. it to strangle it, Errol. Yes, yes, always have one to hand. But also, exactly, <laughs> what had he done? Oh, I think he did all sorts of things, Errol Flynn, actually. All manner of dreadful things. Yeah, I think maybe, yeah. It probably wasn't the only letter saying... Really wondering whether a feather bow would be the right sort of instrument. If you're a Hollywood (laughs) film star, I think. Yes, I guess so. I guess you're right. You're right. (laughs) There's another one of the layers that we're talking about that you say that there's a sketch reel... So there's a ballet sequence. It all gets quite complicated. There's the ballet sequence, as you say. We see the ballet of the red shoes within the film that the character Vicky Page is dancing in. And you say there's a sketch reel of how they made the ballet sequence, which sounds incredibly detailed and beautiful, beautifully worked. We've got an illustration of one of the um, of one of the pictures from it. Yes, and yeah, wonderful. So, yeah, I mean, the ballet sequence is, I think, 14 minutes long, which, you know, and Powell had to push for it because uh, he thought it was the whole point of the film was this ballet sequence, and we had to see it in its entirety. Um, it's very hallucinatory. Again, it's seen really from the point of view of, of the Moira Shearer character because she's by then really infused herself with the story of the ballet and with her steps and the score, which is completely internalised. So it starts off with her on stage, you know, entering, and then and then the boundaries of the stage dissolve and it becomes a really internal personal experience, a kind of hallucinatory experience of suddenly, you know, the, the audience becomes the ocean. She perceives herself and other dancers as flowers, birds, it's clouds. It's really extraordinary. Uh, so the way it's been staged in the, um, the way it was created was there was a whole team of very talented European emigres working with Powell, Emmerich Pressburger being one, of course, but also a German designer called Hein Heckroth. And uh, he imagined the whole the whole ballet. And then Ivor Beddoes created a, hundreds and hundreds of sketches of illustrating this ballet and they are beautifully executed sketches in and of themselves really and Mm. then those hundreds of sketches were boiled down to a sort of bisto cube of just a set of key drawings and then each of those drawings is photographed and then synchronized bar by bar to the score of the ballet 
And then as so they created a sort of sketch reel from that that was in keep in um, you know in keeping with the with the score. And then as they filmed each sequence to illustrate each sketch, then the ballet, the the filmed ballet gradually replaced the sketched ballet. So we don't see the real the real in action, as it were, because that no longer exists, of course. It was destroyed as the film was being made. But there's a lot of the sketches on display in the exhibition, and it's really interesting to see just again how I suppose how unrealistic and visionary the whole thing is it's a it's a film that celebrates artifice and the ballet is perhaps the sort of the, the acme of that within a film that is itself a delightfully artificial or mm. always line between the two worlds mm. I wanted to to ask you Muriel you make the point that the film comes out in the years immediately after the war and is just stunning for people to see all that colour, all that, as you say, artifice and make-believe and fairy tale. Was it quite different from other films coming out at the same time? Well, I think the, the feeling generally after the war was, was certainly one of trauma, uh, but also perhaps, if anything, a desire to reappraise uh, the political situation in Britain to rethink what might be the relationship between the social classes. I mean, these are all preoccupations that are, you know, there in other countries as well, not just in Britain. I would say just the general post-war cinema uh, that explains why we have neo-realism in Italy, for example. You know, mm -hmm. there's there's a sort of grittiness to to it and a desire to engage. Well, a suspiciousness mm. of make-believe, I suppose, and a desire to engage more directly with reality. And Powell and Pressburger are uh, not interested uh, in that at all. Although, arguably, they made some pretty committed wartime propaganda films during the war. So it's not to say that they weren't engaged, you know, uh, but I think afterwards, that in a way, what this reminds me of is um, Christian Dior, right? Because... Uh, Christian Dior, as you know, with the new look after the war, and it's it's pretty much contemporary to this film. It's 1947, the new look, I think the first collections that Dior uh, showed in Paris with uh, incredibly luxurious feminine fashions, full skirts, lots, acres of fabric, silks, velvets and so on, colour, uh, mm. celebrating femininity, which which caused a little bit of unease at the time because it was still a time of rationing and and it seemed a little um, excessive and not very seemly to celebrate uh, femaleness in that way and fashion, to revel in fashion in that way. And there's something similar in the spirit of the Paul Presburger approach, I think. After 10 years of penury and privation and having to sacrifice yourself for king and country which they did support um it was lovely to think for a moment about sacrificing life for art simply about that mm. yes i mean that's beautifully put and um, i'm sure there was a great relief apart from anything else of t turning to something like that but it ha and it also has the real Glamour, and I don't just mean glamour kind of feather boas, almost, you know, the magical use of the word glamour. It has a real attraction that draws you to it, doesn't it? Partly just because it's so bright and so beautiful. A lot of the language of Pal Pressburger, I think, is is expressed through colour, through the use of colour. Uh, they're brilliant at black and white as well. Their black and white is incredibly expressive and, uh, you know, uh, affecting. But I think there's something about 
color, technicolor, the use of technicolor, which is more like a sort of hallucinogenic drug or a food, you know, something that you consume and that becomes part of you. So, it, it, I mean, people, other people have written extensively about this, about the use of red in Pell Pressburger, about the, the, the certain combinations of color. I think it's part of the whole total artwork approach, particularly in the case of The Red Shoes. That is, this is a film that speaks to you through music and storytelling, of course, but also just incredibly powerful images that that move you without you really quite knowing why. And it's partly the colors that are like uh, notes of music or like uh, physical sensations that are like touch. It's very engulfing. And that's also tied, I think, to another aspect of the film, which is that like most Pell Pressburger movies, it's surprisingly erotic, even though there is absolutely no sex on screen. There's no sex. And the the greatest tension in the film is between Vicky Page and Lermontov, her mentor and the, the impresario character. But the this is a relationship which is above and beyond sex. And at the same time, it's permeated with desire. But desire is expressed mainly through colour and composition. It's very interesting. Well, it's it's Eros, isn't it? But it's also Thanatos. It's it's you know a grim story at its heart. <laughs> it's yeah. it's you know ambition it and achievement. Well, it does not end well. <laughs> no. Will take you Spoiler. to a terrible place. Yes, sorry anybody who hasn't who hasn't grasped that yet. But I I think it's fairly well known. She is essentially eaten alive. That's what mm. happened. Mm. Story. Mm. The human sacrifice. I mean, it's rite of spring, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sacrifice the young girl to a higher cause. Rite of spring with feather boas. Yes. There's also been it's influenced more recent incarnations of the story as well, hasn't it? But and you know some of which have been have been very good and very powerful. But I wonder if any of them still has the power. I rewatched the the ballet sequence. And even you know you could watch it on YouTube when there's ten million things going on, and it's still it's still incredibly strong and powerful mm. yes i think it does live on i uh, it's um so it's influenced a lot of people matthew bourne's ballet for example um his his own take on the red shoes where he married the red shoes to bernard herman's music and that's really inspired i think there was an album by kate bush and there's you might say there is an affinity between an artist like kate bush and and michael powell it's interesting that she she would have responded so clearly to to the film it's perhaps become more difficult now to make a film like that, to make a film that is directly inspired by the Red Shoes. I mean, a film that celebrates sacrificing your life to art and to dance without it turning into pastiche. So, for example, La La Land, you mm. know, arguably uh, is a sort of... It's, Damien Chazelle, I think, is someone who will have seen Pell Pressburger, who will have seen The Red Shoes and understands the tension between uh, life and art. But La La Land is a, is a musical comedy, but it is, it's tongue in cheek. You know, it's a pastiche. It doesn't take the tension too seriously. Whereas, interestingly, he made an earlier film, which I mentioned in the piece, which my son introduced me to. I'd never heard of it. It's called Whiplash. And it's so it's first mm, film by yeah. Damien Chazelle, which is about... A young man who wants to be a jazz drummer, and it's very autobiographical. That's what Damien Chazelle wanted to do initially, and before moving to filmmaking. And his relationship, the young man's uh, relationship at music school with his uh, jazz drum drumming teacher, 
who is a tyrannical, terrifying, demonic figure, a bit like Lermontov in the Red Shoes. So it's interesting also because it's not about the male gaze there. It's about a relationship between two men, an older man and a younger man. But it is entirely about perfectionism and a really bruising, terribly morbid, dark take on art. So because it's about drumming, there's bleeding on the drumsticks. You know, you have to drum. Mm lead to keep the tempo it's totally continuous with anderson and with powell but it's the only example i've seen recently fairly recently because i think it's it's, it's funny when i was reading your piece and thinking about the film i mean this is a completely different thing but it, it made me think of the film a much more recent film tar which has that kind of you know, it's sort of realistic up to a point in its execution but it's also quite fairy tale-ish and horribly disturbing yes yeah absolutely no you're right I mean you know no obvious sort of correlation between them just kind of broad correlation but it seems that that there's a sort of idea that lives on in kind of explorations of art in that way of the sort of doomed slightly as you say demonic kind of talent and the sort of possession mm, element of it that mm. you talk about Muriel as well yeah. Yes, so it's very much a story of possession, and indeed Anderson's stories are often about uh, possession, and mm. is about possession up to a point. And uh, I think it's a fascinating, it, it's a story we like to tell ourselves and to frighten ourselves with, really, but also <laughs> to urge ourselves to slightly higher feats of achievement. You know, there's also a fantasy of becoming something great that I think a lot of people can identify with on screen, but mm. price. There is a price. There is a price. <laughs> there is a price. <laughs> Particularly if you're Errol Flynn, for goodness sake. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think you should feel sorry for Errol Flynn. No, you're, you're quite right. You're quite right. <laughs> he was no gentleman. Right. He was no gentleman. He had it coming. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Muriel, thank you so much for... Um, for sharing your expertise and enthusiasm for the Red Shoes, which we should all rush out and watch again. Absolutely. <laughs> Great to talk. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Muriel. time for this week. Our thanks go to Martin Ivans, James O'Brien and Muriel Zaga. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me Alex Clark, goodbye. <laughs>